other commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you, sh you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher <coughs> declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad, because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. God will add a blessing to the public reading of his word. Thanks, Annette. So in, in parts of Africa, among some fairly primitive people who observe a form of paganism, there is a practice of putting out bowls of milk at night in the hopes that the spirits will drink it and be pacified and protect them through the night from danger. And in our less primitive knowledge, we like to dismiss such practices as silly, don't we? But the thing is, the idea of satisfying the gods so that they might save us is not only not silly, it's actually the underlying premise of most worldviews across all cultures and all ages. In fact, it continues to thrive even within the one religion that at its very core teaches against it, our religion, Christianity. Of course, we use more sophisticated words, we imagine a different looking God, and we certainly have much more complex offerings than bowls of milk. But details aside, any idea that suggests that we need to perform to get God to love us Regardless of how theologically advanced that idea may sound, it is nothing more than a bowl of milk. And this is the very premise that St. Paul so passionately and consistently argues against in all of his writings. God does not need to be appeased. Because number one, we could never appease him. That's the bad news. Number two, because he loves us, we don't have to appease him. That's the good news. And at the very center of Paul's entire collection of writings, he gives his most brilliant defense of his entire theology of why we can't and do not have to transact with God. We find it in 1 Corinthians 13. Now, we, for those of you who are visiting or haven't been here in a while, we've been studying the book of Corinthians forever, but we've specifically been studying 1 Corinthians 13, the centerpiece of Paul's library for the last few weeks, and we're going to be in it for quite a few weeks. And he starts it off with this amazing poem that we have read together, in which Paul is quite clear in this poem that it's about love, not transaction. Not transaction. So last week, we looked at the question of faith without love, and we used a story from the Jesus tradition, because Paul was referring to the Jesus tradition here, right? Jesus is the one who said, if, if your faith is as small as a mustard seed, you can move mountains. So we looked at faith without love last week, using a Jesus tradition. Today, I want to look at performance without love. Performance without love. This is another, comes from 
the Jesus tradition at all if you give all you have to the poor but don't have love you gain nothing it, it comes straight from Jesus encounter with the rich young ruler I don't know if everyone was in yet we're looking more and more like a Greek Orthodox church lately where people come in all through the service. It's beautiful. But anyway, if you missed the opening video, or if you, if you, actually if you saw the opening video, that was a great mashup, right? That was classic. Right? I love that. I, I can't decide if it was the Lego guys or the, or the peeps dressed up. Okay, anyway. This is a classic. Classic story. Most of us know it. Unfortunately, I think a lot of the interpretations of this story make it support the very thing it's trying to dismantle. You see, the story is not really about wealth, or even our posture to wealth. It's not about obedience, or giving things up to follow Jesus. And it isn't even about helping the poor, really. It's about bowls of milk. And the reality that even if bowls of milk were required by God, we could never put out enough to satisfy. See, the rich young guy in the story had all sorts of bowls of milk. He was a very good performer, but he didn't have love, so it gained him nothing. Now, St. Paul was very clear. He said it clearly. If you do all of this but don't have love, you gain nothing. Jesus was much more nuanced, which maybe has led to some of the confusion in the story. So let's try to resolve some of that. The story starts with a great question. And to this man's credit, he was asking it despite being a very successful person. Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? You know, this guy had it all. And often, the reality is, the easier life is for people, the less inclined they are to seek out God and salvation. So at least this man was interested. Kudos to him. Right? Kudos to him for at least coming to Jesus and saying, hey, what do I do? The sad part is, <coughs> while he asked a great question, he didn't hang around long enough to get the answer. See, Jesus always met people where they were at. And the guy's question revealed exactly where he was at. Now, I know a second ago I said it was a great question. And the premise behind it is he was seeking salvation. That's great. But the assumption behind the question, which is, is exposed by the wording, is actually not so great. He says, what must I do? What must I do? The guy was convinced that he was capable of transacting with God. That he could earn his salvation. This is the absolute beauty of Jesus. This is a rich, powerful man who acquired those riches and power by his own efforts, so Jesus met him there. He met him right where he was at. In that ideology that, oh, I can do this. I can transact with you, God. So Jesus starts with the commandments. Obey the commandments. So I'm sure what Jesus was hoping, that showing him the law, the commandments, I'm sure Jesus was hoping the guy would realize he wasn't as good as he thought he was. But the guy didn't get it. He was very convinced that, in fact, he had kept all these commandments. Teacher, you declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Excuse me. And you know what? Maybe he had. Maybe he had. So Jesus' first attempt to get the guy closer to the truth, meaning where he's at, sort of failed, but it was a good attempt. And let me make a quick side note here. All this good talk good teacher, what must I do? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God. So, some commentators want this to be secret code for Jesus denying his divinity. That's what some commentators do. Other commentators want it to be double secret code for Jesus claiming his divinity. 
I think what's happening is simply Jesus setting up his eventual answer. He's saying here, listen, no matter how good somebody is, in comparison to God, nobody's good. There are just not enough milk bowls that will ever satisfy that transaction. So he's setting this up. So he's tried to draw the guy closer to him. The guy sort of, he parried that. So Jesus tries another attempt to get him closer to the truth that he can't possibly do this. He can't earn his salvation. And he uses the perfect light to dispel this guy's, this particular guy's illusions. He says, well then sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Now, I want you to notice a key detail here that Mark gives us. Jesus looked at him and loved him. This is a brilliant detail. Jesus didn't consider this guy an arrogant jerk for saying he had kept all the commandments. He wasn't mean to him. He didn't drop the conversation. He didn't pull out his iPhone and get on Facebook and say, this guy's going to hell because he doesn't know the right doctrine. He didn't do any of that. He loved him. That was a joke about the iPhone. There weren't iPhones 2,000 years ago. Rich, are you sleeping? Like, I made an Apple joke and you just... Wow! Okay, I'll just stick to teaching. Forget the comments. He loved him. Now, we need to be careful here. But this is exactly the part of the story that many people start reading and understand it the way the rich guy did. Think that Jesus was telling the guy how to transact with God as if he was saying, if you do something this wonderful, and this is wonderful, God will save you. But that's not the gospel. That's not the story of the Bible. That, that's not. We know that. So if Jesus was God, why would he teach a different gospel? Why would he do that? Remember, he was meeting the guy where he was at. So it's as if Jesus was saying, okay, all right, I get it. You think you can do this? Well, all right, do this one too. It was said to expose the truth for this man. That he would never be able to satisfy a perfect God. Because here is at least one thing he couldn't do. Jesus was, read the Gospels closely. He's always meeting people right where they're at. Right what they need to hear. And you know, I think that's why the story gets so twisted here in the West. Because in this story, so many of us come face to face with the one thing we can't do either. We don't share. We don't even share when it doesn't cost us anything. Never mind this, that great sacrifice. This is a very uncomfortable story for most of us. So Jesus said this to the man in hopes that it would get him to do the one thing necessary. Fall on his knees and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. In Luke's gospel, in the account of this story, Luke puts it right next to the story of a man who did fall on his knees and beg for mercy. It's a great juxtaposition, and it's important to note because it gives context to the rich young ruler's story. We'll just read it. It's a quick one. We all know it. Two men up, Jesus said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I give. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. 
So this first guy, he's, he's got all his bowls of milk in order. This, this is good. Not being a robber is a good thing. Not being an evildoer is a good thing. Not being an adulterer, that's a very good thing, especially if you're married. I fast twice a week, and he gives a tenth of all he gets. That's an excellent thing. But he didn't gain anything. Because he didn't have love. He gained nothing. Jesus was clear. that The other guy was justified, not him. It's right there. I didn't say it. Jesus said it. It's about love. He didn't know we needed God's love. Or if he knew we needed it, he didn't want it. He didn't want mercy. A merciful God wants to give mercy. The rich guy in our story didn't understand his need for mercy either. He would not accept the fact that he could not transact with God. His whole life was about transacting. And so he went away. He went away. Now, Luke's account gives another great detail, just like Mark was giving these details. Jesus looked at him as he went away. More love. I, these little details in, in Scripture are so important. You know, it's like Jesus watching this man walk away reminds me of when Jesus stood on the hills overlooking Jerusalem and wept for them. And just cried, you know, Jerusalem, I would gather you unto myself if you would just let me. I see him watching this guy walk away and just thinking, no, just come back. I haven't got there yet. Let me love you. Accept my mercy. You see... Jesus' commentary here on the situation, how hard it is for rich people to get in the kingdom and the eye of the needle stuff, this is not more law. This is not Jesus saying rich people can't go to the kingdom and, and, and it's, you have to get rid of everything to go through the eye of the needle. That's not what this is. This is an observation of a very sad truth. A very sad truth. If we insist on impressing God with our own efforts, and if we insist that our possessions and our works are sacred things, if we insist that we do not need God's mercy, then we're missing the whole point. We're missing the whole point. K. Pawn says it this way. If it is not financial success that keeps us from the saving emptiness of Jesus on the cross, it is moral success, intellectual success, emotional success, or spiritual success. We simply will not lose, and without losing, we will never, ever win. Remember when Paul calls Jesus on the cross foolish? It is foolish. It's a dead God that we have to trust will save us. That's why all these other things. Yeah, for that guy it was money. And for many of us it's money. But for most of the people that I spend my life with, it's, it's usually moral success or intellectual success or emotional success or spiritual success. Things they just won't. They trust those things. We trust those things instead of trusting this God who died for us. Now, 
See, this guy was such a winner, he couldn't not win. And he went away. The disciples were still having trouble understanding at this point, but they were almost there. They were almost beginning to grasp that no one could possibly put out enough milk bowls, and that's why they asked this question, then who can be saved? And again, we have that great detail. Another, that, that great detail, Jesus looked at them. This is when I, I just see Jesus looking at his disciples and going, yay, finally asked the right question. But also be thinking, oh man, this road really is narrow. But, here's the beauty. Jesus looks at them in love and says, it's okay, I'm going to die, and I'm going to cram as many people on this narrow road as will let me, and I'm going to shove as many people through the eye of the needle as I possibly can. Because that's the only way it's happened. See, we like to use that eye of the needle and the narrow road as things to fear, scare people, and, and that we're special because we found it. No. It's Jesus making observations of the reality of the world that can't save themselves, but he will. He'll get a lot of people on him. He'll push a lot of people through the needles, I'm convinced of. And finally, because of this question, Jesus is able to finally give the answer he wanted to give the rich guy. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. We can't appease God, but thankfully we don't have to. Jesus used this opportunity to continue to reveal that at the heart of God is love, unconditional, sacrificial, relentless love. This is what the cross says, God loves us. This is what scripture says, God loves us. This is what God is always, God in us is always saying, God loves us. Paul explains it like this. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. So God in us is always calling out Abba Father. This is love. This is love that knows God loves us as children and is calling back out in love to him. This is what's in us. It's not performance. It's love. We need to listen to that voice. God knows every other voice in this world is about performance. Every other voice is performance. Do this, and then maybe I'll do that. Be better at this, and maybe I'll do that. Love me first, and maybe I'll love you. But there's one still, small voice in this entire universe that says, I just love you. I just love you. Derek Webb nailed it with that song that Aaron covered for us this morning on Beloved. Jesus accomplished through death what we never could through life, no matter how hard we try. St. John understood this. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And because St. John understood this, he also understood this. We love because he first loved us. And here is the rub. When we allow ourselves to be loved unconditionally by God, then... And only then, we will begin to love others unconditionally like God. And that is the life we are called to. Michael Boover writes in his newest book, Christians are called to conversion, turning toward love, and depth conversion, 
turning again and again and ever more deeply to love. Jesus was clear on many occasions <coughs> that God demands Christ-like living. The most obvious was when Jesus said this, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. But Jesus was just as clear that it is only love that allows that possibility to live like Christ. God's love is so perfect that not only does he save us because he loves us, his love also makes us live into love. His love, by grace, is the power that transforms our lives. It says it like this in Titus, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Grace. God's love. It's all about love. I still have people that say to me, you can't just teach God's love. I can't teach anything else. There is nothing else that works. The law doesn't save and the law doesn't transform. Fear doesn't save and fear doesn't transform. Judgment doesn't save and judgment doesn't transform. Oh, it might work a little bit in our human kingdom. Sure, we scare the heck out of our kids enough, they might toe the line for a while, but they sure ain't going to be changed people. And oh, we can, we can build churches and we can live in churches where we demand everyone to be the best moral people they can be. And if you don't, we will shame you. Oh, that's going to do a lot of good. Well, I'll look the same until you leave and find more authentic Christianity somewhere else. Well, of course, if we put enough pressure on and we have 1,000, 1,500, maybe 2,000 people all doing the same thing and all saying that if you vote this way, you're a good Christian, maybe we'll stay together for a while because we love to be together. But that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. No one's getting saved. The gospel of Jesus Christ is God's love will save you and God's love will transform you. Full stop, period. It's right here. And it's from the beginning of time. This is what the Bible says. It's all about love. People who think you can't teach love all the time, I suspect don't really understand what God's love is all about. See, I think Jesus really did want this guy to sell all his possessions and give it to the poor. I really do. But he didn't want him to do it so he would earn God's love. He wanted the guy to stay long enough, get the answer, receive unconditional love, and that would be the response. Remember the other rich guy? Zacchaeus? We've studied Zacchaeus a lot. Put it next to this story. It's the story of two rich guys. One received unconditional love, and by the end of the story, was given his money away. One didn't. See, the old paradigm <coughs> would have heard this sermon today and said, Wow, David's given a gospel message for non-Christians. No, I'm not. The new paradigm is, I'm giving the gospel message to us because we all need it all the time. And until we live like Jesus Christ exactly, we need to know God loves us. Because it's not about milk bowls. It's not about transacting with God, and it never has been. 
It's about love. Paul understood this completely. When we receive God's love, we will be saved. When we receive God's love, we will love others. Jesus said it this way. Love God, love others. Perhaps we really should. <laughs>